name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today I'm looking at the motif of the Lamb of God. We hear it so often. Um, we kind of take it for granted, but I was reminded in something I was reading last week that for the, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist who transferred over to Jesus, to hear that phrase, Lamb of God, it must have uh, been a bit surprising. It must have been something they'd never heard. They probably had no way of knowing, in fact, what it even meant. As you look at the passage, the, the Lamb of God becomes associated with the Son of God, and we get an almost bewilderingly rich uh, series of ascriptions for Jesus that develop out of the interactions that are going on so rapidly. And yet the Lamb of God, of which we have one in our uh, sanctuary right here on the back wall, was maybe the predominant image that the early church used in the images in their churches to represent Jesus. So I want to examine a little bit where this, this idea came from, if you like. It certainly figures very predominantly in this Gospel of John and in the whole Johann, Johannine corpus, if you like. Now, we don't live with lambs the way they did in the ancient Near East. Lambs were ubiquitous. They were everywhere on the landscape. Lambs, of course, are little sheep. And sheep, whether little or large, young or old, ram or ewes, are notorious for many things. They certainly look very beautiful, especially from a distance. They're white, they're, they're cuddly, they have these beautiful eyes. They seem very gentle, very trusting, which they are. Accompanying those uh, rather attractive features, uh, a slight notoriety for being uh, somewhat intellectually challenged, if we can put it that way. And also, they have a rap for being independent, rather belligerently so. Not as much as goats, mind you, and it's very good also at this point of time to bring together the idea of, of sheep and goats. We often hear about sheep and the goats being separated. They're often found together, and they both share a common uh, vocation, uh, not just of keeping the economy going, of being a means of production, if you like, for ancient uh, Israel, but also being part of the sacrificial system by which ancient Israel uh, kept making peace with a God who demanded uh, blood, if you like, but would accept an animal as a substitute. You have the scapegoat that's sent out of the camp, basically, and as we'll see, the sacrificial lamb. We'll get to that. However, in fact, sheep are not independent. They are the most dependent of domesticated animals. It's just that they don't know it. They require human assistance for everything, for their food, for their water, for their shelter, for protection from their predators. Uh, sheep do not escape either. They go astray. Yet they go willingly to the slaughter, so trusting is their nature. Now, it's natural then that such figures of everyday life would also figure in the symbolic universe of Israel and of the Bible, that they would begin to acquire levels of meaning that were sort of layered on them. And um, as we pursue that, it's not surprising that they are very much associated with everything that is creaturely, 
specifically human creatures, and not so much with the Creator. King David, for instance, refers to the Lord, to God, as the shepherd, not as the sheep, and himself as the lamb. But for most of the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, comes across more like a lion than like a lamb or even a ram. And though God reveals himself, as well as uh, one who has very much uh, lion-like attributes as a God of tenderness and compassion, slow to wrath, rich in kindness and faithfulness, the same God of the Exodus is nonetheless the one who commands that it is going to be the daubing of the blood of lambs, not a bone of which may be broken, on the lintels of his people's houses so his angel can get to the serious business of killing the firstborn of every Egyptian family. Yahweh is and remains a warrior through and through and a victorious warrior, but the victims for him are the lambs. This makes it all the more interesting then when we get to Second Isaiah and the servant songs. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That's how sheep are. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, who is him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Who is the him, the he? Well, we know it certainly are speaking of Jesus here. And there's that wonderful old spiritual that says not a mumbling word did Jesus make as well as he prepared for his crucifixion. I'm jumping ahead. I want to slow down, however, and see how these pieces are brought together. Now, the people of Isaiah's time had to wait it out without finding out how, who this, this silent uh, sheep-like person was. But if the Passover lamb suffered and was a victim, we are also beginning to see some of the sympathy of our hearts shifted more and more to that lamb. It's now a surrogate sufferer and a vicarious victim. Our sympathy is shifted from the spared sons of Israel, if you like, to the sheep that are slain in order to give them their exodus, their way out of danger. The New Testament then takes this displacement and makes a kind of quantum leap here. In the New Testament, the exodus is seen not just as national history, the delivery of Israel from Egypt, but as a model for cosmic redemption, the setting free of all of creation. Israel now represents all of humanity. To be redeemed, set free from captivity to a sinfulness which is not just captivity in English, or rather in Egypt, but which transcends national boundaries. And both the Redeemer God and his instrument of redemption, the Passover or Paschal Lamb, are mutually implicated with Jesus. They begin to kind of move around, switching identities, as Jesus is crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. The church has to make sense of the fact that God is a God who goes to the cross and finds his victory through the cross and not by getting away from it or around it. 
We have to leaf through the pages, especially, however, of the revelation to St. John, the very end of the Bible, to see the Lamb of God literally proliferating on every page of that work. And this kind of syllogism, Jesus is the Lamb, Jesus is God, therefore the Lamb is God, coming into its own. Now, it all sounds very nice, as syllogisms do, But if you think about what is happening in that transfer, Jesus is a lamb, all right, not the shepherd, the lamb. Jesus is God, this we get, therefore the lamb is God. We really are faced with provocative, disturbing, and and, and rather resistible fusion of images which bring together victory and victimhood, triumph and tragedy, power and weakness. And we can live with these paradoxes or try to ignore them. I think a lot of the time that's what we do by default. But if we can enter into this bringing together, we can begin to see something of the heart of God for which very little in scripture and less in life has prepared us. And that is quite simply that God has come to deliver us from many things. And sin can appear in many forms. But the sin to which he is putting an end is the sin which expresses itself in violence, in a relentless cycle of violence, of quid pro quo, betrayal and revenge, blood for blood, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth violence, which seems to all the world like justice, even God's justice, and very much like God's wrath against sin. Now that wrath, which in the Old Testament can be placated, not by humans anymore, and that's a quantum leap, but by creatures in the New Testament takes a further leap, and it's huge. Because now, as God has said in the Old Testament even, don't bring me bulls and lambs and calves. I don't want them anymore. What we see in the New Testament, in the cross, is that God's wrath against sin can only be placated when God offers himself as victim. That's all. When God places himself in the hands of angry sinners to take Jonathan Edwards and stand him on his head and takes the unprecedented step of showing to humanity not just the depth of his anger, but the depth of human depravity and the unfathomable richness of God's mercy to answer that depravity, not with anger, but with grace. All this to demonstrate that the scripture is, as René Girard so aptly puts it, a text in travail. It's a piece of work. Progressive revelation was the polite way we put it in my day. But there is so much, so much more to it than some simple stepwise unfolding of God's eternal plan. The text really takes us on some twists and turns, some slaloms up and down the mountain, which no one in the old dispensation could possibly have imagined. It's a text that turns in on itself too, if you like, as it turns the whole world and the whole sacrificial system, which the text itself had set up, 
and by which relentless conflict driven by desire, by envy, the shared desire for the same object is only stopped in its tracks by the selection of a victim, a scapegoat on whom the sins of all will be laid, the innocent giving their lives as substitutes for the guilty. Whether led to the slaughterhouse that was the temple, and that's all the temple was in Jerusalem, a giant slaughterhouse, or driven out of the camp like the scapegoat to die in the desert, the death of the innocent on behalf of the guilty does bring a kind of reconciliation to the community, but it does not do it in the most satisfying way. Whenever we find scapegoats, to relieve the tension we find when we're getting on each other's case, the resolution is short-lived. Whether we find it in school bullying, gang warfare, or the jostling of superpowers for world domination, the need to find the one who doesn't fit and then fit him or her for crucifixion of one kind or another, whether by internet exposure, drive-by bullets, or barrel bombs, continues to maintain the grip of that old sacrificial system, which was still in full swing when Jesus came on the scene and offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. And with Jesus, everything is turned upside down. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, says the prophet. And how beautiful it all sounds, the light shining from the holy mountain and gathering all those to come and worship. But what he goes on to say is where the grit of it is. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has choose, chosen you, the Holy One who is the sacrificial lamb of God. The great reversal in which everything is turned upside down should come as no surprise when you turn that last slalom and look back at the path of salvation and see that indeed everywhere in scripture there are hints of it. But on our quest to get to the top of the mountain, we tune out all the references in scripture that say that the journey really begins when we start our ride down again to Calvary. We are so invested even in the church with the victory scenario that we forget that the cross and the crown belong to the victims, not the victors. God will show us if we do not remember, not just that we are on the wrong page, but that we have the wrong script. As Gordon Fee used to say to us, we evangelicals know our Bibles so much better than anybody else, and we read them so much worse than everybody else. <laughs> it's a pity. But this is one of those places where we learn to read what scripture is saying, and it doesn't come easy for me. We've got to turn that book and turn it upside down to see it right side up. And the lesson comes hard. That's why we call it a Paschal mystery in honor of the Paschal lamb. And that is why we call ourselves, above all, followers. 
with Andrew and Simon Peter, Petros, which means rock or really means stone, the kind of stone that is picked up pride from the walls of the temple for one reason, to start stoning some offender or other. That's what rocky means. It's the kind of stone you take when you're going to put an adulterer out of her misery. Jesus puts a stop to this too and so much else that drags us back into the cycle of vengeance. Let him without sin throw the first stone, he says, and in doing so, he plunges us all into that state of moral innocence. He takes us out of that place of security when we're so confident who is right, who is wrong, who's up, who's down, and he takes us into that liminal zone in which, like the lamb, we no longer know friend from foe. That's Jesus' reason for being then and now. And we need not know where to project our sin onto others, whether with words or with sticks and stones. We need only this, know this, where our own sin lies, where it has its origin, the depth of our own depravity and our own propensity to project that depravity onto anyone and everyone else who will wear it, who seems to fit. And we've done that again and again as a culture, as a church even, and we're warming up for the next round, I promise you. Maybe when the dust from that has cleared and our children get to clean up the mess and the intermingled blood of innocent and guilty alike has been mopped up or washed away, we will be ready to surrender to Jesus once again. But between now and then, in this time being, let us be seen and known as just that, followers, acolytes of Jesus. And followers are those who wait on him, not just those who wait for him, those who wait on him every minute, who await his command in eager expectation that they will be called into action, maybe to walk with their master. And when Jesus says follow, May he find us at ease, no, at attention, abiding, which means watching and waiting for that word from him. He will have much to say to we, his followers, in the days and years to come. These are wonderful times we face, brothers and sisters, wonderful times. So hang on and hang in. Amen. Please stand.